Well, go ahead and take a seat and take your Bibles out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have been studying the letters to the seven churches. We are in the last of those seven churches, the church in Laodicea. We are going to take two Sundays on this, Lord willing, this Sunday and next Sunday as we wrap up our, our study through the seven letters of Jesus to these seven churches. These are really the epistles of Christ. These aren't the epistles of Paul or of John or of Peter. These are Jesus's epistles. They're his letters to his church. As you guys are turning to Revelation 3, uh, Sam Crabtree, who is a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church, where uh, John Piper was the pastor there and uh, has since retired, he wrote this. Sam Crabtree wrote this. There are nine things that are impossible to do simultaneously. Nine things impossible to do simultaneously. You cannot serve two masters at the same time. You cannot be thankful and angry at the same time. You cannot be for Christ and against Christ at the same time. You cannot keep your eyes open while sneezing. I don't know if that's true, but I've never tried that. You can't please God and be faithless. You cannot be God and be a liar. You cannot be a bull or a goat and be able to take away sins. You cannot be Jesus and be held by death. And you cannot be spiritually hot and at the same time spiritually cold. That last reference is a reference to Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus reserves his harshest words in all of these letters to this church in Laodicea. No commendation, only condemnation. And it has to do with this issue of being lukewarm. So I want to ask God's blessing on our time. We're going to read this section and we're going to ask God to do a work in our hearts, to reveal our hearts to our own understanding, that we would see very clearly what's going on. We need God's help to do that. Even as we read these words, we're going to see. We need God's help or else we will be deceived. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, all the way down to verse 22 and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You don't even know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you, buy from me gold that's refined by fire so that you may become rich. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and clothe the shame of your nakedness and it will not be revealed. Buy from me eye salve that will anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we... We want to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to, we want to be attentive. We want to be aware. We want to be understanding of what you are saying to these churches, to this church specifically in Laodicea, and to us this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would graciously allow your Spirit to open our eyes. We don't deserve his gift of illumination. We don't deserve him working this supernatural miracle to change our affections, to open our eyes to see, to uh, open our hearts to receive. We don't deserve that. We don't earn it. We haven't merited it. We don't have any reason to receive, to earn, to, to deserve, or to demand that you do this work. The only way that we can have this done is by your grace. So, Father, please be gracious to us. Open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your word. And God, I pray that you would grow affections, awaken affections, create in us the sweetest affections for Christ that we've ever had. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, by now you have seen the formula of every single letter. There is a greeting, there is a description of Christ, there's a declaration of what he knows, there's a criticism, there's a corresponding warning based off of that criticism, there's a promise, and there's an exhortation. So we'll do about half of that this morning, and then, Lord willing, we'll pick it back up uh, next week. First, the greeting. Let's begin with the greeting. The greeting. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, the angel of the church in Laodicea. Laodicea is about 40 miles south of Philadelphia. It was a sister city to Colossae, which you know from the book of Colossians. It was about 10 miles to the east, and Hierapolis was another city in this little triangle about six miles to the north, and Laodicea was this beautiful city. It was on a plateau. It was virtually uh, impenetrable. You couldn't even get to it by uh, just climbing up. You had to have this ramp that got you access to it beautiful city. The New Testament doesn't record anything regarding the founding of the church. It was probably established during Paul's ministry to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, but we know that Paul did not actually plant this church. We know he wasn't the founding pastor of this church. We don't know uh, who was. We don't really need to know who was. We know that it was a church that existed that was doing great things. Paul mentions the church in Laodicea six different times in the New Testament. He mentions this church six times, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 is one of the places you could write down. He loves this church. He prays for this church. He desires that this church would be a church that would thrive with passion for Christ and grow in godliness and effective evangelism. Paul loves this church, but when Paul was writing to the church and loving this church, that was 45 years ago, uh, where John's writing at this time, where Jesus is writing at this time. It's a very different church now. A lot has changed. This city had four major features that were attached to it, four different 
uh, features that this church was known by. Number one, and you can write these down because they will come into play in this letter. Number one, it was famous for its textile industry. It was famous for making clothing. It was really famous for these ranchers that raised this specific species of prized sheep who had black wool. It was very glossy. It was beautiful, and it was in great demand. They would ship it out all over the known world. So it's famous for clothing. It was famous also for uh, its medicine. It, it had a very famous medical college uh, that developed this powder called uh, Phrygian powder that was used to make uh, an, an eye ointment that you would put on your eyes to uh, get rid of infection and disease. And it would, again, it would send this all throughout the known world. It was the most affluent city. This is number three. So not only the clothing, but also the medicine. And now number three, it was the most affluent city in all of Asia Minor. This was the wealthiest of all the cities that we've covered and other cities as well. It had an enormous banking industry. It became wealthy uh, not by taxing the people inside of it, but just because the people were so hardworking and were so wealthy that they became rich on their own. There was a huge earthquake that happened in Laodicea in AD 60, and Rome said, oh, we're so sorry about your earthquake. Let's send some uh, relief money. Let's help build the city. And Laodicea said, we don't need your money. We can build it all on our own. They were so wealthy. And fourth and finally, the, the fourth aspect of uh, famous features of what this city was known for. It was notoriously known for a struggling aqueduct system. It had an aqueduct system that would pipe water in from Colossae and from Hierapolis. And I just love the way that God did this for our memory, for our understanding. Colossae had cold water. Colossae starts with C. It had cold water from the spring that was freezing cold. And so uh, freezing cold water, refreshing water, uh, was piped from Colossae all the way to Laodicea. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm water. So L, Laodicea, lukewarm water. Hierapolis, that was only a few miles to the east, uh, was uh, known for its hot water. H, Hierapolis, known for hot water, had this bubbling spring that was so hot you couldn't even uh, touch it because it was boiling, so you had to let it cool off. It had this little system that would make it uh, go to the side, cool off a little bit, and then you could bathe in it. It was used for medicinal purposes. It was a great, uh, of great value. So they tried to pipe in that water from an aqueduct system from Hierapolis to Laodicea, but again, by the time it got there, it was lukewarm, which, as you know, is going to come to play in this letter. Is known for wool, for its eye salve, for finances, and for water. And those will all come into play in this letter. That's the greeting to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Number two, the description of Christ. The description of Christ. There are three things that Jesus uses to describe himself. Three titles, three aspects of who he is that he uses here. First is the amen he is the amen. You know that. We use that at the end of our prayers. It's just a word that means, let it be true. This will be true. Let it be the way that it's been stated. It's, a, it's an affirmation. It's certainty. It's wanting something to be fixed, unchangeable. That's why we pray it at the end. These are the things that we hope, that we pray, that we desire. And God, let it be so according to your will, right? Amen means what we've just said. We want to filter through your will. And if it accords with your will, let it happen. Make it happen. Let it be so. But you'll notice that before Jesus begins saying anything, he doesn't say amen at the end of his statements, right? He says amen before. He says, before I even say anything, know that it's true. Know that it's true because I am true. This is what is true. I will declare what is true. 
because I am truth. Secondly, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Faithful, enduring, uh, never-ending, true, genuine, real. Uh, The word witness is that word martyr. Uh, Literally, he is a martyr. He died uh, for a proclamation of the gospel. He rose from the death. These believers uh, in the book of Revelation are dying for the gospel. So he says, I am the first martyr. You are following behind me, but I am a witness to what is true. I am truth. I witness to what is truth. And finally, number three, I am the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. That's a very strange phrase, and different translations translate it differently because this is a very weird verse. The the words are hard to put into a word order that makes sense in English. Uh, Some of your Bibles might have a footnote that says the source or the origin. This is not saying that Jesus is the first of what God created. By the way, that's what cults will say. Cults love this verse to say, see, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. He's the first. God created him first. And then a lot of cults will say, then Jesus created everything else. And they'll go to this verse. They'll go to other verses. That's not what this verse is saying. The word for beginning is the one who begins, the beginner of creation, if you will, the origin, the source, the beginner of creation. So he's the one who made creation happen. That's what the, the verse is saying. That's what the word says. I am the one who made creation. But we could go all over the place in the Bible to see that Jesus is not a created being. He is the uncreated one who created everything, right? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So Jesus is with God in the beginning. God did not create the word. The word existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. And, and then as if that wasn't enough, John chapter 1, verse 3 Uh, John tells us that through Christ, all things have been made, and apart from him, nothing that has been made was made. So philosophically, if you want to say that Jesus is the first created being, and then he made everything else, you either have to say all other things, all other things other than him in John 1, 3, all other things other than Christ were made through him, which would put a word into the text that's not there, Or you have to to do philosophical gymnastics to say all things were created by Jesus, and Jesus is a created being, therefore Jesus created himself. It doesn't work. The Bible is abundantly clear. Jesus is the eternal uncreated one in perfect triune unity with the Father and the Spirit. So he says, I am true. What I'm going to say is true. I witness to the truth, and I am the beginner of all of creation. Now, why is this important? Remember, every description uh, is somehow connected to the admonishment that he's going to give to the church. And here, very specifically, he's doing just that because the church in Laodicea, first of all, they're very uncertain about things. So he says, I am the, the certain one. I am the true one. And the church in Laodicea is waffling on things. They're uncertain. They're not very effective in their walk with the Lord. He says, I am a faithful witness, and this church in Laodicea has become an unfaithful witness, which is one of the reasons why God gives the the harsh uh, condemnation that he does. But then he says, the beginning of creation, I made you, Laodicea. I made you for a purpose, for a reason. I made you to orbit around me as the creator of everything. That's what you're doing right now, Laodicea, but you're not doing it well. I made you, and you're supposed to find your, your source of satisfaction, your source of energy, your source of everything in me, and yet you're looking to other things, to 
to find energy, to find your source of satisfaction. They're looking to those things that we discussed. They're looking to, we've got a booming industry in, in clothing. We've got a booming banking industry. We've got a booming medical industry. We don't really need God. So we're awesome. God can just be an outlier around us. And he says, no, I'm the beginning of everything. You are outliers around me. So he starts by saying who he is in relation to what they're struggling with. He identifies all of the areas that Laodicea is struggling with. That's the greeting and that's the description of Jesus. Now, number three, the declaration of what Jesus knows. The declaration of what Jesus knows. Verse 15, I know your deeds. And normally it will say, I know your deeds, all of these good things, but I have this against you, right? We've seen that pattern. All of these good things, but I have this against you. With the church in Laodicea, there is no, these are good things, but I have this against you. He just jumps right into the criticism. So for the declaration of what he knows, it is the criticism. There's no good thing here. There's no, uh, you have all of these different things that you're doing well. Remember even back to the, the very first church we, we covered, uh, the church in Ephesus. Yes, you have left your first love. That was the criticism. But you're being faithful in evangelism. You're being faithful in the midst of persecution. You're doing all of these amazing things. Here, Jesus just says, I know your deeds. You, you have works. You're busy in ministry, but that's not what counts. You don't love Jesus. You don't love me. You can be famous for your zealous works, but lethargic in your love. And that's exactly where we find these believers in Laodicea. They, they know who Jesus is, and they want to do busy things in his name, but they don't love him. So the declaration of what Christ knows, number three, goes right into the criticism, number four. It just moves very quickly. The declaration, I know your deeds, moves straight into the criticism, number four. And his criticism is very harsh. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. I will throw you up. You're disgusting to me, is what he's saying. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to say that they are lukewarm? What does that mean, that they're lukewarm? There are two main ideas about this criticism. There's one that's really popular. There's one that's less popular. I personally think both of them have a lot of merit. And so I want to go through both of them. The first interpretation of being lukewarm is that hot means fervent, passionate love for Christ, and cold means hatred towards him. So lukewarm means you're just kind of indifferent in your emotion, indifferent in your passion, indifferent in the way that you love and your affections for Christ. Again, I do think that there's merit for that, and we'll talk about that. The second one is that hot and cold are both good. Because remember, Hierapolis, hot water used for really good things. Colossae, cold water used for good things. But by the time that it got to Laodicea, they had stopped being hot or cold and they were just lukewarm and they were useless. They couldn't do what the boiling hot water could do and giving you a nice bath or relaxing you or doing other medical things. And they couldn't refresh you like the cold water in Colossae could do. So both hot and cold are good in this interpretation. And so Jesus is saying, I wish that you were either hot or cold, useful, effective in your community, effective in evangelism, effective in your faithful witness, but you're neither of those things. You're not hot or cold. You're not useful. You're just lukewarm. Again, I think there's merit for that. So let's start with the, the spiritual love one. We'll just call it spiritual love. Where, where is your spiritual love taking kind of your spiritual temperature, if you will? 
Now here's what I want to show you. We're going to look at a couple different verses here. I want to show you why I think there's merit. Remember, we're always asking the question, what would the recipients think, right? What would the author think about what we think about what the author said? And that's our question. That's that pithy question that we ask when we're studying the Bible. What would John, as he wrote Revelation, what would John think about our interpretation of what John said? What would John think about what we think about what John said? So I'm saying, John, I I think, and ultimately it's Jesus who's saying these words, Jesus, I, I think you meant you would rather these people be hot on fire in their passion for you or cold in, uh, completely against you, uh, maybe even hatred towards you. I, I think those, that's what you're meaning by the words you're using. What would Jesus think about my interpretation of what Jesus said? Now, to understand what the Bible means by what it says, we have to do the process of interpretation. We've been studying with our brother Marty, uh, observation, interpretation, application. We've been studying the, the grid with which we view the Bible, words that are used. We study the Bible historically. What did it mean to the original recipients? Grammatically, words have meaning contextually inside of its context, and then literally at face value. We don't want to try and find hidden meanings in the text. So let's study it grammatically. The word hot there is used elsewhere in the Bible. Turn to Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 20, or chapter 18. I just want you to see these these words so that you can see there's merit for the on fire for the Lord versus angry and hateful towards the Lord for hot and cold. Acts chapter 18, verse 25. This man had been, this is Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So, being fervent in spirit. That word fervent is the same Greek word for hot. So you could put there being hot in his spirit. What does that mean? It, it clearly means being passionate, being on fire, being uh, excited, being affectionate towards the things of the Lord through the spirit, through the work of the spirit. That's the same word that's used that Jesus uses in Revelation 3. I wish that you'd be fervent. We could put it there. I wish you'd be fervent, but you're not fervent. Uh, Go to Romans. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Don't lag behind in diligence, but be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. Be passionate in your spirit. Passionate in what you're doing. You can write down 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. This is where Paul says, I want you to kindle afresh and fan into flame. Kindle afresh. That's the same word. Make it hot. Make it fervent. Make it passionate. Turn to Matthew. Let's look at the other side of the equation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow what? Grow cold. So again, it would not be an anomaly to say that Revelation 3 says, I would want you to be fervent and passionate in spirit and not uh, this cold Uh, the indifference, this lukewarm indifference, I'd rather you even be just cold, out and out against God. 
We can see that elsewhere in the text, in the Bible, in the words that are used in the Bible. Back in Revelation chapter 3, in context, in its own context, he says, you're, you're disgusting to me. Your, your temperature is disgusting. I don't like your temperature. I, I've, I've put it in my mouth and I don't like it. I'm going to throw it up. I'm going to spit it out. I don't know if you've ever had warm sushi before. Yeah, the groanings tell me you have. The Lord made fish to be eaten either hot or cold. Not gas station warm, right? That's not the kind of sushi we want. Um, I, I enjoy cold brew coffee. Uh, I like cold iced coffee. And I love scalding hot coffee that you have to sip very, very carefully or else you're going to burn your mouth. But I don't know if you've ever had the coffee that was once cold and now isn't or was once hot and now isn't. But it's just this middle ground and you just, ugh, this is disgusting. Milk. I personally don't like hot milk or warm milk, but I know people that drink warm milk. Makes them sleep better. Freezing cold milk is great. My kids are notorious at making cold milk lukewarm, right? They're just the best at turning really good cold milk very quickly into lukewarm milk. They always ask in the morning, can I please have a glass of milk? You pour the milk, it's freezing. They look at it, they take one tiny little sip, and then they leave it there. And then at lunchtime, you think, they must have poured themselves another glass of milk. They love milk so much, and I'm thirsty, and you take a, a sip of it, and it's just, this milk has turned. It's not good. I don't want this at all. You know what else is gross when it's lukewarm? As Christians, right? Christians are disgusting to God when they're lukewarm. So what is this lukewarm person? What is this spiritually neutral person? What do they look like? How do they act? I think that they attend church regularly because they're going to be in this church service listening to this letter being read, right? They're going to hear these words. So they attend church regularly. They think that they're a good person, but they don't love Jesus, they have externals without any internal love for Christ. You could write down, they are, I think, the epitome of the Hebrews chapter 6 person who surrounds themselves with believers. They're in the midst of believers. They, the, the word pictures that are used in Hebrews is that they get splashed on by other believers, but they don't dive into the pool themselves. They just kind of stay on the outside. Or to use another example, uh, we have the Super Bowl today. Uh, you got people that are going to be rooting for one team. Uh, some people would be rooting for the other team, and when one team does what they want, they cheer, and when the other team does what they don't want, they boo, and they're angry. And, and then you have those people that go to the Super Bowl party that say things like, you know, did they shoot a basket good? You know, they, <laughs> they, they don't know. And if that's you, come over, because it's fine. We will not judge you. But you have those people that clearly, like, who's playing? Is it the chefs? Who's... Who's, we don't know who's playing today. What game is this? Uh, and they're just kind of neutral, right? Who's, is the goal to have the fewest points like golf? Like what, They just don't know. Those people, I would say, are lukewarm to football, right? Just indifferent. If the 49ers win, fine. If the Chiefs win, fine. I don't even know what winning means, right? It's just 
I'll be happy with whatever. So imagine using that analogy with the Christian life. Obviously, the Christian life is not a game. The Bible would clearly say it's not a matter of, hey, let's just uh, root and holler and just be fun, and, and it's a piece of cake. And No, it's, it's a fight, so it's not a game. But in the analogy, sin, Satan, and hell would be on one team. Jesus, righteousness, and heaven would be on the other team. And you've got people that are rooting for both sides, right? You've got people that are saying, I do not want Satan to get the upper hand. I do not want sin to reign in my mortal body. I don't want sin to win. You have people on the other side who are saying, I love sin. I hate God. I don't want him involved in my life or in anybody's life. And then you have people in the middle that just, eh. I mean, I see benefit to Christianity, but let's not be too harsh with these people over here. Like the middle ground, lukewarm, they are the, if we can title it this way, the watchers. They just watch. They check out both sides. There's maybe merit to both. Maybe I would probably side with one or the other, but there's no intensity to who they are. They don't really care who wins the game in the end. If Jesus wins, fine. If Satan wins, eh, no big deal. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21, says, It would be better for these people who end up falling away from Christ not to have even known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from it from the holy commandment that had been given to them. It'd be better not to be a watcher and just, you know, I'm involved a little bit. It'd be better to just be out completely. You're not hot or cold. Jesus is saying, I'd rather you close your heart off and run away completely than play this watching game. It's really like what Elijah said uh, when he was on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Do you remember? Choose you this day who you're going to serve. Either choose Baal or choose Yahweh, but don't have this, well, we're fine with both. We'll, we'll follow both of them. Choose this day. Wholehearted rejection of Jesus is better than half-hearted endorsement of him. I mean, think about it reasonably. It's better to say the Bible is completely false than to say some of it's true, some of it I don't really like, I'll take it and leave it. That's a very dangerous place to be because you end up becoming God, interpreting the Bible how you want it to be interpreted, and you think you're saved. So God says it would be much better to just be completely against the Bible. Now, I want to be very careful here. Does the, does the Bible say that God really would desire we would hate him rather than be lukewarm? Is one a more precarious position to be in than the other? Uh, you can think of the prodigal son. I think the prodigal son is informative, right? This, both brothers want the same thing. They hate their dad and they want to party with their friends. One brother goes about doing that by saying, I hate you, Dad. Give me money. I'm out. The other brother never says, I hate you, Dad. He says, I'll work for you. I'll slave away. I'll do what you want. I don't love you, but I'll, I'll stay close to you and do what you ask me. And in context of that parable in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal is the one who gets saved. The prodigal is the only one who gets saved. And the prodigal represents people who repented the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the Bible would say, they get saved. And the older brother represents the Pharisees. They don't get saved. So I think prodigal son, I think other passages like it would inform that, yes, this does fit the idea of it's, there's a better possibility that you will come to Christ if you completely know your lostness than if you've been playing a game. It's hard to have somebody wake you up in the midst of playing a game. I, I want to be careful, though, because there's other places in the Bible that 
uh, would inform this. You remember Jesus said to the Pharisee on Tuesday of the Passion Week in the Gospels, uh, the Pharisee who asked, what's the greatest commandment? They have the interchange. It's not a testing question. It's a genuine question. And then Jesus at the end says, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far. So if there is somebody, granted he was a Pharisee, that's moving towards being hot, but if there, if there is, uh, there are passages in Scripture that say you're close. So yes, Jesus would, would like your trajectory to be coming to him. But I do think that the Bible as a whole would say you are in a more precarious situation if you're playing the game of Christianity than if you just are out now atheist, if you're just removed. There's a different level of deception that happens. One author says it this way, God is holy. In heaven there exists a being who decides whether or not I take another breath. This holy God deserves excellence, the very best that I have, but, but something is better than nothing, people protest. Really, is it? Does anyone enjoy token praise? I sure don't. I'd rather you not say anything than compliment me out of obligation or guilt. So why would we think that God is any different? Leftovers are not merely inadequate. From God's point of view, unless we forget His is the only one that matters, they are evil. So let's stop calling it a busy schedule, or I have bills to pay, or I'm just forgetful. It's called evil. The Bible's filled with verses that would say it's Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. There's priests that are bringing these animals. Do you remember these poor, decrepit animals that they're bringing, right? They're like totally messed up animals. The Bible goes into great detail to tell us, like one eye's falling out and broken legs, and the priests are like, this is good enough for God. And God says, I wish that you would just stop sacrifices altogether. I, I, I would rather just shut the temple down than this token, fake, mediocre, going through the motions I'd ri- I wish that churches would be shut, then there'd be casual Christianity. Think about some of the most famous people with regard to being completely cold for Christ that end up getting saved. You remember Josh McDowell, right? Atheist, completely hates God, sets out to write a book to mock Christianity, and in the process, he gets saved, right? Like, only God would do this. He wrote evidence that demands a verdict. Lee Strobel, same thing, journalist that wrote a book to mock Christianity, ends up believing in Christ and writes the case for Christ. Frank Morrison was an attorney that hated God and wrote a book to show that there's no evidence for the resurrection. And in writing it, he realizes there's so, so much evidence for the resurrection that he gets saved. He wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Uh, what about the Apostle Paul, right? Literally on the way as Saul to go kill Christians, and he's saved, and he ends up writing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. I think that there's a lot of biblical merit to see Jesus saying here to the Laodiceans, you're in a precarious situation if you just stay lukewarm. Casual Christianity, nominal Christianity, disgusts God. Ignatius, an early church father, says, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian. I want to just be nominally Christian. I want to actually be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the title Christian. Come fire, come cross, come battling with wild beasts, come the wrenching of my bones, the mangling of my limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only this, let me get to Jesus. So can you take your spiritual temperature this morning 
and ask the question, are you busy in doing things for God without love for Him? Um, Are you nominally Christian? You show up at church, praise the Lord that you do, but maybe you've bought into a sense of self-deception where you think that coming to church gets you saved or makes you have a right standing before God. Check your own heart. How, how often do you rely on the Lord? How readily do you seek Him in prayer? How readily do you seek Him in His Word? How needy are you before Him? Now, these good works don't earn you a right standing before God, but they just demonstrate that you have a genuine love for Him. I think sometimes Christians just tend to make things way more complicated than they need to be. If you were to ask me, how's Hannah doing today? And I say, Hannah? Wait, who's, who are you talking about? You go, uh, Hannah, your wife? <laughs> oh, oh, Hannah, yeah. I haven't talked to her in, it's been about six months. I don't know what she's up to. Wait, you haven't, you haven't talked to her in six months? How is that possible? Don't you see her every day? Oh, no, we don't, we don't live in the same house. We don't live in the same house? We've got a lot of problems with what's happening right now, right? Like, so many questions are going on in my mind. And yet, we tend to do the exact same thing with Jesus, where we say, hey, do you know Jesus? Have you, you talked to him recently? Do you love him? Do you hang out with him? I know that sounds so sacrilegious to say that, but just in the analogy of what's being said, do you have a relationship with him? And you go, no, I don't really, but I am totally a Christian. Right? I think that's where Jesus would say, no, you're playing a game. You're you're stuck in self-deception. The second interpretation of being lukewarm is usefulness and effectiveness in following Jesus. Hot and cold are both good because they're effective in doing what they are supposed to do. So lukewarm just means pointless. You have no benefit. You have no value in the community. You're barren in your witness for Jesus, which again, I think they go hand in hand. I think the end result is ultimately the same because the end result, the only way you have a faithful witness in your community, the only way you are obedient and faithful in following Jesus and living out the Great Commission is if you have love for him, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ compels us to do these things. John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you aren't compelled by the love of Christ, you're not going to have a faithful witness. I think they go hand in hand together. One commentator says, Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to the Lord. And I think that that's true. I think that also flows out of being spiritually lukewarm in your temperature for the Lord. Either way, the end result is that Jesus says at the end of verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will throw you up. So we can label this church. We can label these lukewarm people before the Lord, number one, they're disgusting. But secondly, verse 17 is going to tell us something about their understanding of themselves. And we can just say they're deceived. They're self-deceived. They're disgusting before the Lord, and they're self-deceived. Verse 17, because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I don't need anything. That's almost a direct quotation from Hosea chapter 12, verse 8, where the people of Israel are saying, we're awesome, we've got everything we need, and then they get destroyed. They're, they're completely destroyed. 
That's what Jesus is saying about this church. You, you think that you have everything you need and you actually have nothing. These are the kind of people that can't bench press the bar even though they think they're ripped, right? They, they, can't, they can't do anything, but they think that they're all that. He says, you are, you are completely wretched, verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, I have needed nothing, but you don't even know, you're deceived. You don't even know that you're wretched. That word wretched is a very graphic word. It's the same word that's used by Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. You remember Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Paul, when he says that, who will save me from this body of death? I'm a wretched man because I have a body of death. He's using a word picture that would have been totally understandable to the Romans, right? He's writing a letter to the Romans. The Romans had a couple different ways of punishing murderers. One of the ways that you punished a murderer in Rome was that you tied the victim, the murdered victim, you tied a dead body, you chained it to the back of the murderer. And you just said, now go your way. And the death and the, the decaying flesh and all of the infection and maggots that would happen to that body on your back would permeate your body and you would die. That was your death sentence. That's the word wretched that Paul uses. I'm a wretched man because I have a dead body that's infested with infection and maggots on my back. And here Jesus says, you're wretched, but you're, you're strutting around in the streets with a dead body on your back saying, I don't need anything, I'm fine. That's why they're naked and they're shameful. And Jesus says, I want to clothe you and cover you, but you don't even know that you need it. They're miserable. They're miserable. That's the second thing that Jesus says. You're wretched and you're miserable. Middle of verse 17. Miserable, that's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember when Paul says, uh, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, you and I uh, are of all people most to be pitied. Do you remember that word pitied? That's the word miserable. We are of all people most to be miserable. We're, we're pitiable, right? We are to be pitied. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor. It's a couple different Greek words for poor. This is the lowest of the low. This is completely destitute. We have nothing. This is the same word that's used in the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is so destitute, the dogs are licking his sores. That's the word for poor. They're naked. They have nothing. They're blind. They can't see. They don't have the capacity to see, and they're naked. Remember, contrast this to everything that Laodicea as a city stood for, right? Poor. No, they're, they're not poor. They're the richest city in Asia Minor. Blind. Well, we can fix that. If we're blind, we've got an eye ointment that can fix that. Naked. We have a complete textile industry that makes clothing that the entire world wants. We've got all that. The very things that Laodicea is condemned for, Laodicea thought they had. They thought they had it. So they're disgusting, they're deceived, they're destitute, they're dirty, they're diseased, and they will be destroyed, but not yet. This leads to the warning. Just really quickly, warning. We'll, we'll pick this up next week. Verse 18, I advise you. I love how he advises. I counsel you. Another word would be counsel. I counsel you. Come to me for counsel. I'm not commanding you. I'm wooing you. I'm pleading with you. I advise you. Buy from me 
gold refined by fire so that you can become rich. There's such beautiful gospel irony in that. This is, this is an ironic statement. He just said, you are so destitute, you have no money, so come buy from me. Well, with what money? How are they going to buy anything? You could write down Isaiah 55, verse 1. You remember, behold, uh, whoever wants to come and drink, come and drink and, and buy bread with money that you don't have and drink wine uh, with money that you don't have. You can come and enjoy it for free. That's what Jesus is saying here. Come to me with nothing and I'll give you everything. If you come to me with everything, I'll give you nothing. If you come to me completely naked, ashamed, poor, destitute, I will give you gold, refined or purified gold so that you'll have, you'll have a spiritual purity, you'll have a spiritual faith that won't be hypocritical or apathetic. It'll be pure. I will clothe you with white garments. You don't need to go to the bank to get your money, and you also don't need to go uh, to get the black, glossy wool. You come to me, and I'll clothe you, not with black, glossy wool. I'll clothe you with white garments, complete purity. I'll clothe your nakedness. You should be ashamed, but I will cover your nakedness. Again, they, they should be, right? You give you white garments so that you can clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be re- revealed. You should be ashamed, but you're not, but I will cover it. I'll give you eye salve, end of verse 18, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, this was so specific to the Laodiceans. They had this. They had this Phrygian powder that made this eye salve. They had all this. So very clearly what Jesus is saying is you feel like you have no need for me. You're naked, but you think you can clothe yourself. You're destitute and poor, but you think you're rich. You're completely spiritually blind, but you think you can, you can fix that with the ISAB. You think you have everything that you need to fix yourself. That's exactly what happens with lukewarm nominal Christianity, right? There's like enough Christian antibodies that are given where you think, I'm fine. That you become immune to, to hearing the gospel, to remembering that Christianity is not just, well, try harder, do better, Christianity is not a crutch. A lot of people use that analogy. Oh, Jesus is your crutch. I say, no, Jesus is my life. I don't need a crutch. I need the paddles on my heart. I'm dead. I'm spiritually gone. That's why Jesus says, be zealous. Repent, turn. But notice, for how disgusting this church has been to Jesus, he doesn't say, in this letter, that's it, I'm done with you. There's always grace. If you still have breath, there is time to repent. So can I ask you just honestly, what is your currency that you use to get to God? Are you like the Laodicean church that thinks, I mean, I need help, and that's why I'm glad Jesus died for me, but I'm also a good person. I try to be a good person. If I can say it this way, the only currency that we have is brokenness. If you are rich, you can't afford what Jesus is offering. If you're rich, you can't afford it, but if you're poor, then you have more than enough to get to God. We could say it this way, knowledge of your own depravity is the currency with which you purchase faith. Obviously, you don't buy faith, but in this analogy, knowledge of your own depravity 
is what makes you cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed are the poor in spirit, bankrupt in spirit. We're turning out the pockets of our pants saying, God, we have nothing. Can I still get in? And God says, that's it. That's why we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I think that it would be wise of us to be slow to partake of these elements. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you've grown up in church, you, you, you think you're a decent person and you're probably a very nice person, but you've never come to the place where before God you have been devastated as you look at your sin. You've been completely leveled by your own sinfulness and you've cried out, God, help me. I, I, would, I would say this morning your prayer needs to be, God, show me my sinfulness. Be gracious to me to show me I am in desperate need. I'm poor, I'm naked, I'm blind, I'm miserable, I'm wretched, I've got nothing. And I've thought for so long that I had enough and I was okay on my own. If you're here this morning and you would classify yourself in the fervent for Christ category, the reason why we come to these elements is to remind us of our need for Christ. To go back to that day when we first knew our sinful depravity and we cried out and we said, God, help me. And he gave us his mercy and his grace and his son. So these elements are for believers to rejoice that that day happened so that this day we can celebrate. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus or maybe you feel I might be lukewarm, I would encourage you, let these elements pass you by. Pray that God would open your eyes and do exactly what he promises to do to those who would repent. Today is the day of salvation. If you would turn from self-sufficiency and self-dependency to, to throwing yourself at the mercy of Christ and saying, my sin is so weighty. I need a Savior. Father, we ask that these things would happen by the power of your Spirit as we sing, as we prepare to partake of these elements. We don't come before you with any deserving merits. We come before you humble, devastated, depraved, and hopeless, truly hopeless, apart from Christ. That's why we remember your death and your resurrection and that you're coming again every time we celebrate communion. God, help us prepare our hearts now.